Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. It's so glad you've tuned in for the program today to talk about some good news. And when we talk about good news, I think I mentioned this on yesterday's program. I want to mention it again today for the whole network to hear. Um, we do the Good News Friday stories because we've been doing it. I don't remember how long. I'd have to go back and look at the uh, at the calendar and see. Bottom Line Show is coming up on our 11th anniversary on Monday, September the 19th. And uh, during all that time, we've done a lot of stories, a lot of you know, some challenging ones, some uh, some heartfelt ones, some you know frustrating ones as well. Um, but we've also taken a look at the good things that are happening in life. And one of the things that my commitment to you has been and will always continue to be is we just started doing Good News Friday uh, to highlight the fact that there are so many challenging things that happen in the world. My thought naively and innocently, I guess, um, initially when we started doing Good News Friday, was to say, gosh, you know, on Friday, wouldn't it be great to have a couple of stories that are, we call Good News Friday stories that are good news about the good news? There has to be something faith-based about it. It's not just, you know, a couple of kids had a uh, lemonade stand and they raised some money to send somebody to camp. I mean, that's fine. That Those are good stories. You hear them all the time. And the mainstream media will manipulate you with a cute picture of a dog or, you know, whatever it is. But the reason that we do the good news stories the way we do them here on the Bottom Line Show is they point to the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel, I stress a lot on this program, and many people have pointed out, um, I've been hosting the show for almost seven years when um, I was diagnosed with um, two uh, conditions of my heart. Uh, One of them is the ascending aorta, where the blood that's been oxygenated and it's going back into the system through the aorta, I guess that's the function of the aorta. Um, The ascending aorta, for me, there was an aneurysm. And it had gotten to the point where, I think, if I remember correctly, four millimeters is the, if it's extended, you know, kind of puffing out. Um, Four millimeters is dangerous. Five millimeters means it's going to be so big in the puff that it's going to literally break. And it's what they call an aortic dissection. There are three layers in the aorta. And if the the first one is the toughest and strongest one, if you have a break there, the other two break fairly easily. And then the blood starts pumping, not just out through the aorta back into the bloodstream, but it just starts filling up your body. A buddy of mine had this happen. Oftentimes, aortic dissections are fatal. They're terminal. There's no way you can get around it. There was a rather famous musician recently who had an aortic dissection in the middle of a concert. And they were able to get him to the hospital and uh, rescue his life. A dear friend of mine, Pastor Freddy Cortez, uh, pastors a church here in Southern California. And uh, he had his aortic dissection about three weeks after I had my open heart surgery. So I didn't have an aortic dissection, but they did replace the ascending aorta with a piece of Dacron. It's about 10 inches long. And then the bicuspid uh, aortic valve that I have, there's a valve where the blood gets pumped through and then goes up through the ascending aorta. And if you have a normal valve, it looks like a peace sign or a, a, a kind of like a Mercedes logo or something like that. And the three valves work perfectly to kind of keep the blood flowing. Um, if you have a, a bicuspid aortic valve instead of tricuspid, that means it's just like a slit, like it looks like a kid's piggy bank. And those two valves or the two tops, they wear out a lot faster than the three. Now, my dad was born with an aortic bicuspid valve, and he was 85 when he had his valve replaced three months after I had mine at age 56. So uh, people have commented that since I came back from surgery, I was out from the 12th of March through about the end of April, started making some comebacks. And um, 
by the time I got back into the full rhythm, I heard from a lot of people who said, you know, ever since you came back from your surgery, you preach the gospel a lot more. You're a lot more evangelical. I wouldn't even know you were a Lutheran pastor. And <laughs> that's where my ordination is. But I can't stress this enough. I grew up in the church. I went to churches. My dad was the choir director at all of them. We called him the minister of music rather than the worship leader. And uh, it, it, that's because choral music was his expertise. And so we, we, we went to a Presbyterian church for a while, went to a congregational church for a while, Methodist church, uh, Dutch Reformed. Uh, my dad served at a Baptist church. He actually uh, got saved at a Baptist church when he was younger. And, and so I had kind of a non-denominational experience, but a pan-denominational experience growing up. It was not till I went to the Lutheran church that I started hearing things about law and gospel and this, that, and the other thing. But uh, brothers and sisters, I'll be honest with you. I started attending seminary at the age of 53. And that was the first time anyone ever made the proper delineation about the proclamation of the gospel. I was in a homiletics class. They were teaching us how to preach. And hermeneutics, getting into the meanings of the words and stuff, I love that. Systematic theology, how it all comes together, I love that too. But the homiletics part is probably what a lot of pastors in struggling churches could use a refresher course in, and that's how to make your sermon really present well. And there are three parts of a traditional Christian sermon. I'm sorry for the diatribe here, but I think it's important, especially we're about to talk about the Museum of the Bible. There are three parts of the sermon that your pastor probably was taught how to preach, and that is the goal of the text that you're looking at, the malady or the problem that's in the text, and then the means of, of solving the problem. That's a simple three-point ser uh, sermon. In the Lutheran church that seminary that I went to, they taught us a seven-point process. And that is, there is, must be a goal. Take a look at the text. And in the Lutheran church, there's traditionally three or four texts that inform whatever your homily or sermon's going to be. Then there's the malady. What's the problem? The means is, you know, how God fixes the problem. But then there is a historical reference. And the historical reference is, okay, well, let's get some context here. What were Moses and the Israelites dealing with? What was Jesus really saying to these disciples uh, a year before his crucifixion? That type of stuff. Then there's a contemporary sense. And the contemporary part is, okay, what does this look like today? Because remember, the word of God is eternal. The word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It is separating truth from error. And so basically, the word of God is alive in your life. So it's not like you say, well, Jesus taught the parable of the prodigal son, and that was for the followers who were right there. A lot of people I know will will talk the, uh, the talk with regard to uh, what what the Bible means to them, they'll say, well, it's a book about Jesus. It's a book about God. It's a book about the church and the formations and this, that, and the other thing. But it was written 2,000 years ago, and a bunch of people all had their hands in it. A bunch of other people formed the canon council to decide which you know books were going to be in and which ones were going to be out. But it's, it's a man-made book based on humans' experience. Whereas we in the body of Christ believe, hey, wait, this is supernaturally empowered. This is the living word of God. Jesus is on every page of this living word of God, and he's speaking to us today the same way he spoke to people through the power of the Holy Spirit back in his day and back in pre-Christ days, and, and the word is still active. I mean, it, it's really speaking to us. I mean, it, it is alive, and so it, it's very much contemporary for us. And so when you talk about the, let's see, goal, malady means historical, and then there's then there's the contemporary. 
And then there is an illustrative part to it too. And that's the story. You know, the pastor starts out the, the sermon of the story. In the Lutheran church, they put that sixth in order. Uh, for you and me, uh, it's first. I'll come out and the last thing I want to do is say, let's go right to the text. I'll say, you know, there once was a boy. <laughs> there, there was a family. There was a time when I was this, that, and the other thing. And you come out with an illustration. And then there's the transformative part of the text. And that's the part that I really, really dig. The transformative part of the text that you're looking at says, okay, so what? Now what? What are we doing with this? That's not just for them. How does this apply to our lives today? And this is not, this is where a lot of modern pastors, God bless them, get trapped in the, uh, you know, three points to having a perfect marriage, five tips for raising the perfect kids, blah, blah, blah. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is see what God is saying to us through, I'll use the parable of the prodigal son. And, you know, the, the fact that we can all see ourselves in the story of the prodigal son, we can all see God as the father waiting for his son to return with open arms, knowing that something supernatural had to happen in the younger son's life to make him say, wait a minute, here I am, I'm working with this guy, I'm, I'm making slave wages, I, I, I'm, I'm feeding pigs, I'm a Jewish guy feeding pigs, I, could bear, I, I wish I could have some of the pods that they had. I mean, I, and then, wait a minute, my father's got all sorts of resources. I mean, I'm basically a servant to this guy that I'm working for right now, why don't I go be a servant for my father? He didn't just come up with that on his own. Maybe his hunger drove him to it, but the Holy Spirit got a hold of his heart. So he goes back to see his father, and his father says, oh, no, 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 no. You are getting the fancy coat. You're getting the signet ring. We're going to throw a big party for you because you are my son. You're not a servant. And then the older son comes up and goes, hey, how come I didn't get this? Well, okay, I got news for you, kiddo. Here's why you didn't get this. You didn't get this treatment because you're still here. You didn't wander away. You actually have a bigger inheritance than your brother does, older son. And so the beauty of the gospel and the good news, when we talk about on Good News Friday, is we proclaim the gospel, the true good news. This is not just a pastor teaching verse by verse. This is the good news is you are a sinner. I am a sinner. We are born sinful into a sinful fallen world. There is sin in the world, but I am sinful. And apart from, I, I can try my hardest, do my darndest to be a good person. And if I am not a good person, then I'm going to hell, right? No, if you don't have a way to pay for your sin. And God provided a way when it seemed like there was no way. Because of his great love for us, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and gave that son to die on a cross, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not, John 3, 17, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the true gospel. Now wait, it gets better though. If you're wondering why we live in the world that we are and why things are happening the way they are, let's keep going with verse 18 of John chapter three. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's only begotten son. So now you see that people in the world are saying, oh, well, you could be good without God. What about the atheist billboards at Christmas time? The word of God is very clear. You cannot be, quote unquote, good without God. You stand condemned already if you do not believe in Jesus Christ and the power to save sin, but also that he is your savior as well as your Lord. 
But then verses 19, 20, and 21 should be equally committed to memory. (coughs) This is the verdict, John writes. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Why is that? Because their deeds were evil. Okay, so media people who try to deceive others, government officials who try to screw you and me into the ground, deceitful business people, spouses, kids, adults, parents, anyone who is deceitful because they are living in sin, basically, verse 19, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Then it continues for anyone who says, you could just be good. Let's all rely on our quote unquote better angels. Let's trust the fact that we're basically, I, I actually heard a Bible teacher teach this 30 years ago. He said, we are basically inherently good, but inevitably bad. And that's not true. We are incarnately bad, but we need Jesus Christ. And John 3.20 says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light, why? For fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth will come into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So if you were wondering why we do Good News Friday, this is why, because the good news is just that, good news. Okay, long preamble. I talked a lot about the Word of God, and as we continue, our first Good News Friday story is a very encouraging story out of the Museum of the Bible. Not about something they have, but something that they actually returned. But in doing so, they demonstrated biblical justice. What did they do, pray tell? We'll talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Want to continue receiving income into retirement with little market risk? Dennis Wilson and Wilson Financial Services can help you secure a permanent income and benefits addressing your risk tolerance with professional advisory knowledge. You have a large 401k or IRA as your retirement nest egg. How about a four-dimensional plan that will pay you and your spouse income for life without stock market risk? How about we include inflation benefits so your income goes up annually? How about we include extra income benefits for long-term care? And if you need one or both, you both have it. That's right, permanent income inflation benefits, long-term care benefits with no market risk. We have put over $50 million of our clients' money in the 4D account in the last few years. These clients are sleeping way better at night. Learn more when you call Wilson Financial today at 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. First Good News Friday's uh, story here, uh, focusing on something that happened at the Museum of the Bible. If you listen to the first segment, it was long, and old Pastor Roger was feeling a need to get in the pulpit just to talk about what good news really is. And it's more than just, isn't that a great story? But no, it's good news that exposes two people and exposes them to the good news of the gospel, which is you're a sinner, you can't save yourself, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to pay for your sin and for my sin, full stop. And if you believe in him, which you can only do because God gives you the gift of faith, that you can receive the gift of salvation. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. All you have to do is say, Lord, I believe it. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. Pay the penalty for my sin with your blood. Wipe that slate clean. And now let me live for you under your Lordship instead of the Lordship. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and the world. So that means that when it talks about the, any talk about justice in the world, we want justice, 
biblical justice is God's way of living, what's right and true. I mean, the whole point of your salvation is your sins are forgiven because there's going to be an accounting someday for the sin that you and I have committed. And because we have an advocate, the Holy Spirit is going to say, hey, look, this guy's sins are forgiven because of the commitment that he made and the way he's lived, and you're going to, what God's done for him, and he believes that, and that's in my case him, and in your case maybe her or whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, the word of God is alive. And so this good news is really good news. But when it comes to justice, sometimes in the world, what passes for justice is really just political maneuvering. Well, here's somebody that looks like they committed a crime, but we don't want to make them look bad, so let's give them money instead. Or let's, let's get, so, as long as we have somebody to put in jail, we don't really care. You know, that, that's fighting justice. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who are sitting behind bars and prisons right now who really aren't guilty of the crimes that they were accused of committing, but because the penal system wants to have enough bodies in prison, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are in there because they deserve to be in there. They earn the right but other people who aren't. And we say, where is the justice? Well, here's a case of biblical justice that I am so encouraged by. And I, I hats off to Steve Green, the Hobby Lobby crew, and everybody at the foundation of the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Museum of the Bible curator Brian Hyland has identified a manuscript, which is one of the world's oldest hand-lettered copies of the Gospels. It belonged to the Greek Orthodox Church, and basically what happened, I mean, it has been used for hundreds of years in religious services. Um, there are 400 different volumes that go along with this type of thing. But then, apparently, Bulgarian forces during World War II actually overran the Kosinitsa Monastery in Greece. They w- so how does this all line up? When the Museum of the Bible was getting ready to get started, they were looking for artifacts, biblical things, this, that, and the other thing. They went to an auction held by Christie's in 2011, and they found this collection and said, this is fantastic. This is incredible. I mean, what a find for us. We want to have this in our collection. And so they went to the auction, they purchased it. I mean, they, they wound up winning the bidding, and it was one of the original entries in the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Cool story, Right. Well, interestingly enough, fast forward to April of 2020. You may have heard us talk about the story here on the Bottom Line Show. An academic, a scholar at the uh, Oxford University in the UK, was arrested as part of an investigation into the theft and unauthorized sale of ancient Bible fragments to Hobby Lobby. Uh, Dr. Dirk Obenick, a professor of paprology, at Oxford, allegedly stole these fragments belonging to Erexenus, that, that collection of the Sackler Library. The, the, this Erexenus papyri group of manuscripts were discovered in the late 19th century and the early 20th century at a spot where inhabitants in that city dumped their garbage of all places, right? Well, it turned out he had these fragments and he was trying to sell them to the Museum of the Bible. So now here comes this federal investigation. What else does the Museum of the Bible have that they got that may have been, you know, basically acquired through ill-gotten gain? At that point, February 2020, uh, or excuse me, February 2022, the Museum of the Bible transferred control of about 5,000 manuscripts and bits of papyrus to the U.S. government um, that, that were in dispute. 
These are all things. And again, if you listen to the, the Green family, they're not trying to, there's no, I mean, there is a black market for this kind of stuff, but the Greens were not interested in the black market. They were looking for authentic pieces and basically they were doing this. They got sold a bill of goods. It happens. So here comes all sorts of stuff. Uh, f manuscript fragments, funeral masks, coffins, uh, heads that have been knocked off of statues. 5,000 in all were transferred to the U.S. government, which then sent them to Egypt, where the items were allegedly thought to have been illegally shipped to during Arab Spring. But it turns out a little further investigation determined that actually it wasn't necessarily from there, but rather from Greece. As a matter of fact, um, the formal return of all of this uh, stuff that had been acquired by the uh, Museum of the Bible is going to be happening uh, in the next couple of days. This one manuscript in particular, the one with the 400 volumes that was taken by the Bulgarian forces, um, in 2020, after there was the question about the other pieces that the uh, professor from Oxford was trying to sell, you see, the Bible started looking and doing a little more due diligence in what they had, and that's what they found is that they had this manuscript that was not what they thought it was in terms of whom they bought it from, but rather they discovered that this was a hugely sacred text in the Eastern Orthodox Church. They wound up getting this. I mean, they, they purchased this at auction in 2011. They wound up taking possession of it in 2014. So in 2020, they reached out to the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew I, who was the world leader of the Eastern Orthodox Church, and said, here's the deal. Someone sold us this at auction. We thought it was authenticated. It turns out it actually belongs to you. And so we want to be on the up and up, and we're just giving it back to you. I, I, you may not have known this was missing, or maybe you did know and you didn't know where it went. And the patriarch and his crowd did uh, uh, their due diligence, and they determined that yes, in fact, the manuscript that was purchased in 2011 that was given to and entered in the Museum of the Bible in 2014 was in fact theirs. It had been missing for over 100 years. So Bartholomew I said, okay, well, go ahead and you can display this. And this was back in October of 2021. You can go ahead and display it uh, for as long as you want to. And so now that they have come to this point in time, the Museum of the Bible says, no, we're going to give it back. We, this is something that belongs to you. This is something that even though we purchased it and invested a lot of money in it, and a lot of people have come just to see things like this, we're going to give it back to you. And we're due to do this because this is the right and true and biblical thing to do. I Don't you love this story? Of the Museum of the Bible getting duped, being out hundreds of thousands of dollars, finding out that what they bought was stolen, being subjected to the horrific uh, tales in the press of stealing and lying and engaging and all, there go those Christians again, but then standing up and doing the right thing. Well, there's another part of this good news story that makes me smile even more. We'll talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Right after you get into an accident, you need to call Stephanie Cover of Cover Law to begin the process of healing. Too many people make the wrong choice and try to handle their case on their own. Don't be gullible. Your insurance company does not have your best interests in mind. Their job is to save money, not help you recover. Stephanie's priority is you. She will help you recover wholly, 
mind, body, and spirit, as well as get you the settlement you deserve. Begin your recovery by contacting Stephanie first and follow her instructions to streamline your healing process. Stephanie has over 25 years of experience and knows how to get you healed and restored. Although your friends and family may have good intentions, they are not personal injury attorneys, and therefore they do not know the best way to help you. Stephanie Cover does, and she will help you put the pieces back together financially, physically, and spiritually. You need to write down her number now, 877-214-4935, or go to kbrightradio.com slash Law. Your healing begins with Cover Law. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Hats off to the Green family and the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. They returned a handwritten gospel manuscript more than a thousand years old that was looted from a monastery in Greece by Bulgarian troops in 1917. And now, 105 years later, that manuscript has been redonated, if you will, back to the Greek Orthodox Church. And I'm so thrilled that the Museum of the Bible is is actually setting a standard. How many art collections and historical museums do you find things in? Like you might go walking through and go, wow, that's really cool, and not realize it was purchased on the black market. It's a bad copy. It was stolen or something like that. In this case, the folks at Museum of the Bible making it right and returning a manuscript that is over a thousand years old that's been missing from the Eastern Orthodox Church of Greece for over a hundred years. But here's the cool thing about this. Uh, Patriarch Bartholomew I, who's the head of the Eastern Orthodox Church, said, look, you can hold this on display as long as you want to. And the Green family said, no, 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 we want you guys to have this back. So the Eastern Orthodox Church has now uh, put on loan three more manuscripts uh, that are going to be in display at the Museum of the Bible uh, as long as they wanted to. As a matter of fact, it's part of a collaboration that's a permanent exhibit at the museum. And they're doing it simply to say, Thank you. Oh, I got a tear in my eye. Isn't that beautiful? Well done, Eastern Orthodox Church. Well done, Museum of the Bible. Well done, good and faithful servants all. And how fortunate we are uh, to, to see this happening in our lifetime. I mean, this, this super valuable piece. As a matter of fact, if you haven't been to the Museum of the Bible yet, I have not. I know my family and I are hoping to get there at some point. Um, I highly recommend you go check that out. Um, and we've got a link for this article up at thebottomlineshow.com. Now, as we continue here on this Good News Friday, some good news from um, our friends at the Fellowship for Performing Arts. Uh, A couple of years ago, COVID shut everything down and they didn't know what they were going to do. And then all of a sudden God said, well, why don't you take that C.S. Lewis, the most unlikely convert show that you've had on Broadway, you've had it on New York stages for a couple of years, had it in Chicago and other major markets. Why don't you make that into a movie? Well, Max McLean, the founder of Fellowship for Performing Arts, said, I've never done a movie before. I'm a stage guy for 50 years. God said, don't worry, I got this. (laughs) And the good news is the movie has done tremendously well. Max McLean's going to join me on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Well, special guest joining me today for a special edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, joined by Max McLean, the founder of Fellowship for Performing Arts and also the star of the well, the most reluctant movie, uh, anyway, maybe the most reluctant movie maker, the most reluctant convert, the untold story of C.S. Lewis, which is now available everywhere and uh, highly recommended by yours truly, among others. Max McLean, welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. Thanks, Roger. 
I called you the most reluctant movie maker because we were talking before we started our conversation here about the fact that the most reluctant convert it was such a great project. It's so interesting. It's so well, you know, obviously well presented, but it, it's not always easy to take, you know, something you would do on stage and bring it to the big screen. And yet this is something that wasn't necessarily in your wheelhouse pre-COVID, was it? Oh, we're, we're not movie makers. You know, the, the disciplines required for theater and the disciplines required for film uh, are really quite 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 different and uh what, what happened was uh uh back in 2019 uh most reluctant convert began as a uh stage play back in 2016 mm -hmm. uh and it emerged after adapting the screwtators and great divorce from the page to the stage and uh because both of those uh books reflect aspects of lewis's conversion and uh, so I wanted to go dig into his conversion story itself, and and I turned to his uh, memoir, Surprised by Joy, and that's the uh, that's the basis uh, of the most reluctant convert play. Uh, it's an origin story about how the most influential Christian of the past hundred years, uh, you know, became who he was. Uh, the film is told uh, by an older Lewis coming alive in his memories. The tale of his conversion from hard-boiled atheist to belief in in first in God, uh, theistic God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and finally to belief in uh, in Christ. Uh, it was as you said, as I mentioned, uh, first the play, but then you know when the when the pandemic hit, we had this play was on the road, Screw Tape Letters on the road, Great Divorces on the road. We just uh, had a show in New York, a modern adaptation of Paradise Lost, and then. In March of 2020, everything, you know, shut down. You know, you remember as well as I do. Yes. You know, 15 days to flatten the curve, right? <laughs> yeah. And I right. thought, well, what am I going to do for the next two weeks? Um, <laughs> and when we realized it was going long, uh, we uh, we had, if we were going to do any work at all, we had to turn to filmmaking. And that's what happened to turn this play into a movie. Max McLean is with me today here on The Bottom Line, and we're talking about the movie adaptation of The Most Reluctant Convert, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis looking back on his life. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful, beautifully done, beautifully told story. Uh, it's available wherever you can get DVDs and video streams and things of that nature. And Max, from what I understand, when this first came out, you know, people would wonder oftentimes, and I'm sure you had some questions yourself, well, this is playing for theatrical release. It's going to be streaming services. People are used to seeing our work on the stage uh, but the response to the film was just nothing short of spectacular talk about how surprising it was for you it to... really was surprising yeah uh, in in uh, christian film there's this uh, format called event cinema which means you 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 get a release for one night the the movie chains give you one night to uh, make or break the film and uh we went on sale, and uh, I think the night they gave us was November 3rd, 2021. We went on sale mid-September. And uh, almost instantaneously, uh, the cinemas noticed that, wow, this film is selling really, really well. And uh, by the time we opened, it had already been extended from one night to four nights. And then mm -hmm. when it did open, it extended a whole month. So it mm. ran from November 3rd to December 2nd. Uh, when we uh, when we opened, uh, we were the number two movie 
in America that night, November 3rd. Wow. Uh, we did better than Bond. I think <laughs> we we were second to Dune, which was the big film last fall. Right. Um, but uh, uh, we were number one in per screen average because uh, Dune was in 3,000 screens. We were in uh, a little over 500. Uh, and uh, that got the uh, movie makers' attention. And uh, and then when we went on video demand uh, in uh, in December, uh, it's done very very well there. I think we have like a thousand reviews on Amazon Prime. Fantastic. Uh, at one point, it was up. It was number twelve in DVD sales in in uh, at Amazon. So it surprised us. It really did. I mean, we we knew C.S. Lewis had a following, and we knew if we did a good film that was true to Lewis uh, and you know, we we showed the locations. We filmed it, uh, eighteen different locations in and around Oxford. We had uh, one hundred ninety extras, two hundred seventy costumes, mm. uh, fifteen actors, three actors playing Lewis. One is a boy, mm -hmm. one is a young man, and myself as the older Lewis looking back on his life. It's so, it must be so rewarding for you, Max McLean, having devoted your life to theater to know that when life threw us all a curve with the COVID pandemic, and I, thanks for reminding I forgot about 15 days to flatten the curve because that was what, about 35 months ago now or something like that. Um, the idea that everybody had to pivot. And my pastor likes to say, you know, the 11th commandment or the part of the Beatitudes that Jesus left out is blessed are the flexible because they don't get bent out of shape. But you had to turn to an entirely different medium. I mean, obviously, you know the story, you know storytelling, you know how to present. But when you take the audience away and now you've got the cameras and now you've got the actual locations and things like that, uh, talk about what that experience was like for you, not only as the, uh, the man behind the, the dream and the vision, but also the one playing the elder C.S. Lewis. Well, uh, thankfully, uh, the project was helmed by my good friend Norman Stone, uh, two-time BAFTA winner, which is the uh, British equivalent of the Academy Award, a mm. couple, uh, couple of Emmys. So he, he really knew how to steer the ship. Uh, he, uh, he, you know, what we had talked about making a movie, but we we saw this as three or four years down the road. So when when COVID hit, we, we, we sped things up and he was ready to go because British filmmaking was, uh, was, uh, uh, going to open up in in August of 2020, and he said, "You know, nobody's worked here since March. I can get a really good crew. I can get mm. a really good cast, but we have to act right now." Yeah. And I I said, "Well, confirm those things and and uh, make sure the locations we need are available." And so I went to my board and see if we can get the funds, get the film in the can. Then we you know talk about post production and and uh, distribution later. And on August 31st. 2020, I got on a plane as big as Air Force One with fewer people <laughs> on it, flew to Heathrow, uh, quarantined in Oxford for two weeks. And uh, then we began filming, finished in October. Uh, what was really interesting from an actor's perspective, doing film and doing camera, uh, doing stage, you know, stage, the imprint is the voice. Camera, the imprint, of course, is the image. Uh, and... Uh, when when you do a, a theatrical production, you rehearse for four to six weeks. Uh, mostly, uh, you you prep it uh, in sequence. 
and then you once once the lights go on you do the show and and you do it till it's over in in uh in sequence uh with film they break up the script in a hundred little pieces <laughs> all out of order uh and it's all kind of managed by the availability of locations the availability of of various people and uh you you have to know the continuity in your head which I was grateful that I knew it because of all the stage work I'd done right. on the piece. Mm -hmm. It would have been almost, I, I, put, I couldn't imagine a, another actor trying to put that together. Mm. Uh, we filmed the conversion on the second day. Mm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> because that's when we had modeling college. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, was a, it was a good experience, uh, you know, to be able to use your concentration powers in a different way. I, I, I do find... Uh, you know, the, the the concentration in film is is you really have to dig deep for about a minute mm -hmm. and then you cut and get it from a different angle with uh, with theater. You have to pace yourself to get through the whole play. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm sure that that must be uh, obviously it's a challenge when you're doing the, when you're pounding the boards, as they say, because you're running that marathon every night and then to have yeah. to be able to come and sprint every scene using that mm -hmm. metaphor. Uh, must be a, a real challenging discipline. Did you enlist any other help? Was Norman the the catalyst? Norman for that was great. Uh, I I did bring in a vocal coach. Uh, I found taking to the camera. I was a little intimidated by the camera in the beginning, but uh, I I did get pretty comfortable with the camera pretty quickly, and and I was a little surprised by that because I I you know I'm basically a little self conscious, so you know a camera can be really intimidating. Uh, but I did want to turn that corner pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And and turn it, you did with the uh, tremendous success at the box office, tremendous success of the streams of this video as well. The most reluctant convert, the untold story of C.S. Lewis, starring and uh, uh, driven by, if you will, Max McLean of Fellowship for Performing Arts. We've got a link for the trailer up at thebottomlineshow.com. It's available wherever you can purchase a film on uh, on demand, Blu-ray, DVD, and uh, and I encourage you to check it out. Uh, now that the, uh, the the that itch has been scratched, if you will, I don't know if you, if you had desire to make films before this happened, uh, Max McLean, but now it seems like you're on a roll. What's next in line for Fellowship yeah, well, for we, Performing we're, Arts? We just closed uh, The Great Divorce in Chicago. It was a wonderful production that that opened before the pandemic. And and we were one of the new New York theater companies go back on the road in August of 21. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've we've uh, toured that show for a year now, and it just closes Chicago. I'm opening up a, a new show uh, next month called uh, Further Up, Further In, which is a continuation of the Lewis story. Uh, the Most Reluctant Convert covers Lewis's life from the death of his mother when he was nine. She died of cancer when he was nine to his uh, conversion to Christianity uh, when he was just short of 32 years old. Uh, and uh, But, you know, a lot of people get converted, Roger, as you know, and they don't become C.S. Lewis. Right. So how did that happen? You know, yeah. what what were the uh, what were the things in his life that opened up that he could have, for instance, a a uh, a national audience to uh, speak about Christianity to the British public on the BBC during the war? Uh, how did that happen? Um, what what made him such an extraordinary, uh, really an evangelist, particularly mm -hmm. to skeptical yes. people? Yes. Part of it is because he never forgot what it was like to not believe. So he he always mm -hmm. viewed 
his conversations were always had that perspective. Um, and uh, anyway, I, uh, the, the play we, we, uh, we've been working on it for about a year and we had a preview of it in Phoenix that went exceedingly well. Hmm. And now we're going to roll it out as a national tour that uh, should be all over the country uh, for this fall and next spring. I, I love that. I'm so thrilled that you're back on the on the beam, if, as it were, because it is so important. I mean, I realize the films are great. And a lot of people, while we were cocooning and trying to uh, avoid what was we were told was a very serious threat, uh, we missed something. Talk, take the last couple of minutes of our time together, Max McLean, and talk about why live theater, live production of music, you know, worship services, all those things, the gathering together of people. It does something to us emotionally and physically, but it does something to us spiritually, too, doesn't it? Yeah, well, in theater, it's a it's a really magnificent moment when it happens. It doesn't happen all the time, but this this idea of you have an uh, you have an audience in a contained room, all concentrating on on a story uh, that is really engaging their minds, capturing their imagination. Of course, the imagination is so essential because it's the raw material of what we think about, uh, and you you get this kind of one mind where everybody is in that moment together uh that doesn't happen anywhere and there's a combustion there that uh that the holy spirit uses it's a it's a very very you know faith comes from hearing the message the message is heard through the word of god right. word of christ there's something about doing that community in a community that is really life-changing i think god knew what he was i think god knew what he was doing yeah. when he he made the church for all of us to get together and think on him collectively yes yes and 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 the the power of the testimony of c.s lewis and his mm -hmm. evangelism is so powerful that why not go to see one of fellowship for performing arts is outstanding performances including the new one what was the title again of the one that you're working further on is, it's called further up further in okay okay great um, it's a it, i'm very very excited about it i i think it what it what it will do in 90 minutes it will uh it will capture lewis's uh christianity the way he he expressed it and and, and the depth of it and the imaginativeness of it uh you know his uh the constellation of ideas that came out of his head, the way he framed things, uh, you just get nowhere else. And to be able to do that for for a, that extended period of time is, uh, I, I think the Lord's going to use it in a magnificent way. Well, we're confident of that, and we're looking forward to when you come around these parts again, which fortunately I happen to know you will because your yep. mom lives in the Cape Wright listening audience, so you have to talk That's to your right. mom, right? <laughs> well, Max McLean, the most reluctant convert, the untold story of C.S. Lewis. We've got the trailer up at thebottomlineshow.com and information on where you can get that film. Check out Fellowship for, for Performing Arts as well and the outstanding new tours that they have running now and the ones that will be running later in the year. Max McLean, always a pleasure. Thank you. Great to see you here on the video as well. Uh, for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. 
Well, a great conversation and a great resource, too. Max McLean, so good to have a time with you not only here on the program, but also on Zoom. <laughs> and so we could see Max and me having the conversation at myhopenow.com. Um, if you are interested in the most reluctant convert, I encourage you to check out thebottomlineshow.com. And uh, that it's a great resource to, to watch. It's a very, very entertaining movie. And, of course, beautifully shot by a guy who will tell you that he's not necessarily a movie maker, but I think he did a wonderful job of making the movie. Hey, uh, let's take a quick break here. And when we continue, um, I've got a fascinating story to share with regard to uh, a former Olympic athlete who made headlines recently because he took a look at all of the accolades that he had been given throughout his wonderful career. And I say given, he'd actually earned them and decided he wanted to do something more productive with them. And I've often wondered, I mean, I see this happening in the culture a lot. Um, Why is it that so many people get so hung up on all their stuff and then, you know, what's the old expression? You can't take it with you, right? Uh, Ryan Lochte, Olympic swimmer, making headlines because his medals are soon to be no more. But there's a good reason for it. We'll talk about why next coming up as the bottom line continues in just a moment. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and we have been helping our daughter Taylor and her husband Christian move over the past week. Uh, it's not, it's kind of bittersweet, uh, because, uh, uh, Taylor, of course, Lisa's oldest daughter, uh, they're very close. They're kind of, I mean, Taylor's Lisa's mini me. I mean, the granddaughter Zipporah is part of the, the crew. And of course, uh, grandson Nazareth is on his way. Uh, his birthday is scheduled actually for his uncle Jake's birthday of uh, October 24th. We'll see if he arrives on time or if he shows up whenever he wants to. But as we've been helping them move, we've been helping them go through the process of getting their apartment kind of thinned out, um, you know, get stuff packed up. And as a matter of fact, they got on the truck and uh, they were headed out today, as a matter of fact, to their new home in Dallas and a new opportunity for my son-in-law, Christian. So we're really excited about them moving. We're sad to see them go. Both Taylor and Christian played a lot of tennis when they were younger, and they met in college, actually, as the uh, two stars that year of the uh, uh, the men's and women's teams at tennis teams at Prairie View A&M. And uh, ironically, near the Houston area, now they're moving back to Dallas. As we were helping them pack up, though, we were packing up a lot of trophies, a lot of hardware that Taylor had won in the juniors and through high school and then in college. And we don't have Christian stuff with us. Um, I don't think they had that either. It may be back with his parents in New York. But I, I always wonder what happens when somebody gets so many of these medals, so many of these things that they can, you know, they're so proud of. Well, Ryan Lochte is a name you might be familiar with. This is a guy who is the uh, award-winning Olympic athlete. Matter of fact, behind Michael Phelps, no Olympic swimmer has more hardware, if you will, than um, Ryan Lochte. This guy has gold medals. He's got silver medals. And he (laughs) gave an interview to the Associated Press recently and said, I am getting rid of my medals. Well, Many of my medals, not all of my medals, just, well, most of them. Basically, he wants to raise money for an organization called the Jorge Nation, which sends terminally ill children in Florida and their families on a dream trip of their choosing, kind of like a Make-A-Wish Foundation. So basically, here's what Ryan Lochte decided to do. With all those golds and all those silvers and all those uh, bronze medals available, Ryan Lochte decided to just put them all up for auction and all of the money to be donated to the Jorge Foundation. Now, he has a total of 27 Olympic medals. 
He earned a dozen medals over four Olympics, uh, over four Olympic games, including six golds. Um, he The six that he is going to part with initially are being sold in th- lots of three by the PR firm, uh, a PR auction firm. Um, basically, he's auctioning off a silver medal for second place in the 200-meter individual medley at the Athens Games in 2004. Two bronze medals, the 200-meter and the 400-meter medleys uh, for uh, the Beijing Games. And three medals from the London Games, silvers for the 200-meter individual medley and his role in the 4x100-meter freestyle, along with a bronze medal for the 200-meter backstroke. Now, he is also selling off a 14-karat white gold Olympic ring and a Breitling watch with black diamonds, all of this to raise money for charity. Now, he is going to keep a couple of gold medals. Um, He won a gold uh, for the 200-meter race in Beijing. Uh, Another one he wants to keep for his father. He says, you know, I worked my butt off for these things. (laughs) But at the same time, now that I'm a father and I have children of my own, I realized one day I was looking around and I saw these medals and they were just gathering dust in a closet. And so I asked myself, self, does Ryan Lochte need 27 Olympic medals sitting around in his closet? Or why not keep some that have some personal sentiment to you and let the others go to help raise money for children? Hundreds of thousands of dollars now going to help the families of terminally ill children have a -a make-a-wish type of foundation simply because Ryan Lochte said, well, somebody would want to collect these. It's just not going to be me. I, I, hats off to Ryan Lochte. I don't know where he is in the faith spectrum. I honestly don't. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, and I'm not going to deify the guy if he isn't just because he did a good turn. But I think there's a lesson to be learned here with regard to how we in the body of Christ value things in this life. And I want to unpack that in about a three-minute little sermonette on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We're talking about Olympic swimming superstar Ryan Lochte, who is now auctioning off all of his silver and bronze Olympic medals for charity. Hanging on to the gold ones, at least for now, but he's also auctioning off a white gold uh, diamond ring and a Breitling watch with diamonds in it, trying to raise money for a group called the Jorge Foundation, uh, which is a group, uh, Jorge Nation rather, which sends terminally ill children in Florida and their families on a -a make-a-wish type of trip, uh, which is just a, it's a cause that's important to him, especially now he's 37 years old. He's married, he's got kids of his own. He says, I want to do something nice for them. I remember uh, getting a values lesson uh, when I was very young from a speaker. And I honestly don't remember the speaker, but I remember the story. If you think back to the 1960s, there was a guy by the name of Bob Hayes. Bob Hayes, I first knew about as a wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys. But Bob Hayes was also, before that, he was a sprinter. Matter of fact, I think they may have put him on the team more for his speed than for what he could actually do. He won the gold medal, I want to say, in the 1964 uh summer games in Tokyo and typically if you were the winner of the 100 meter dash since men run faster than women and to my knowledge there's never been an Olympic Games where a woman's run faster than men so I'm not saying this to be sexist it's just statistically accurate Bob Hayes won the gold medal and everyone used to say well if you win the 100 meter dash in the Olympics you are the world's fastest human well a friend of mine who heard this speaker speak said one day he was on an airplane And there was an African-American gentleman who looked like he was inebriated. 
who was walking up and down the aisle, the center aisle of the airplane, talking to anyone who would listen to him. And he had a gold medal around his neck. And he said, you see this? You see this here? I'm Bob Better Bean Hayes, and I'm the world's fastest human. Now, this was a good 30 to 40 years after he'd run the race, and his time had been lowered and bested many times over since that time. But my buddy said, gosh, isn't it a shame that somebody who had such a wonderful prize at a point in time still lets that moment define him? Brothers and sisters, the world that we're living in right now is temporary. You may be blessed beyond belief. You may be struggling financially. You may be in a tough marriage or a great marriage, whatever your circumstances are. Please do not lose sight of the fact that we are all on a journey. We are strangers and aliens in this land, and we are headed towards something so much better than what we can see right now. Don't get tricked into thinking the accolades of today are going to be the eternal treasures of tomorrow. And that's the bottom line on that. For our friends in uh, KCBC land, you've got Rabbi Schneider discovering the Jewish Jesus coming up next for you. Uh, Have a great weekend. We'll talk again on Monday. For those who remain, actually have a nice holiday weekend too. For those who remain, more Good News Friday stories, including the wife of a popular country music star is under fire because of comments that she made that she thanked God that she's not transgender. (laughs) What in the world does she mean by that? We'll take a look at that coming up next as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Good news, good news, good news indeed. Uh, I'm laughing because the story we're about to look at here was in Faithwire. My friend Billy Holloway wrote it. And it's a story about a country music star. And his name is Jason Aldean. I don't know if you're familiar with Jason Aldean, the country star. But it occurred to me recently, I saw a picture of Jason and his wife, Brittany, And then I saw a picture of Tim McGraw and his wife, Faith Hill. And I saw a picture of another country star. And it occurred to me that I'd never seen the tops of these guys' heads. Now, (laughs) you know, I I grew up in a home where my dad was classically trained with music. I've got a son who's really big into classical music. I'm the oddball. Me, my daughter Kaylee, we like country music, uh, along with other musical styles. But nonetheless, it occurred to me when I saw this Tim McGraw ad uh, someone said the ticket prices were going for, you know, pretty high rates. And I said, well, man, I, I posted on the, the social media. I would be more than happy to uh, pay that kind of money if I had it just to see Tim McGraw's head. What's under the hat? You know, and I saw this picture of Jason Aldean and I thought I did not realize how much the cu- the hat for the country music star was part of the image. All these guys have the same head. Kenny Chesney. I mean, the the list goes on. That's not the reason why we're doing the story, but it just, it, it was a reminder to me that oftentimes the, the stories that we look at, the things that we get hot and bothered over aren't necessarily things that we should be getting hot and bothered over. They're just images. The country star always got the hat on. The rap star always got the microphone in his mouth or, you know, the, or at his mouth. Uh, the, the, the politician who's always glad handing and smiling and you think they're such wonderful people until you find out, you know, that maybe they're not. Images are huge in the culture. And one of the images that we have been sold a bill of goods on, I believe, is this new push for transgenderism and the idea that your gender is fluid and the idea that there are people who are born with the wrong sex. I mean, the, the idea that you could even have a situation where you've got medical professionals saying, uh, there was an ad Lisa and I were watching TV the other night and one of those ads came on. We, we watch a lot of like tennis on 
cable, tennis channel, and stuff like that. So they run ads that are the medical ads that are like three minutes long, fill up the entire commercial break, and they've got all the disclaimers on them. And one of the disclaimers was from for some preventative medication that you take. And in the ad, it actually said, do not take this medication if you were assigned the gender of female at birth. And I thought to myself, God in heaven has his hand over his eyes or has his head in his hands and shaking my head and saying, how much longer will I put up with these people? Lord, please, you didn't wipe, wipe us away with a flood or you, you didn't destroy everyone with a flood. You, you kept mankind going through Noah and his family. Um, we say, come, Lord Jesus. We, we want the second coming. We want that perfect nirvana of heaven. But man, I mean, it just... I get, every time a story like that happens, I just shake my head and say, thank you, Lord, for giving us clear vision, clear thought, and a heart of compassion for people who are lost, and how can we reach out to them? Uh, the story, Brittany Aldean is the wife of country music star Jason Aldean. She actually ignited a firestorm with a simple video on a social media platform called Instagram. And in the video and in the caption... She said, and I'm reading here, I've got the video up here at thebottomlineshow.com. said, I'd really like to thank my parents for not changing my gender when I went through my tomboy phase. I really love this girly life. Now, I know that there are some people, maybe even some people who are listening to this program who would, ask, would say, well, that, that sounds like it's kind of mean and hate-filled to me. And before we go any further, may I just add this to the conversation? Um, I've become acquainted with and have known Joe Dallas of Genesis Biblical Counseling for years. Joe and I first had a chance to meet, I want to say it was back in the early 1980s, early 1990s, maybe the late 1980s, at a music station here called KYMS. Joe was a new Christian. He had a ministry for people uh, who were experiencing health challenges because of HIV and AIDS. Joe had been in the same-sex attracted lifestyle, had been a drug addict, had, had gotten involved in all sorts of sexual promiscuity, and then God delivered him from it. And then the real challenge came because he had to find a place to worship, to be part of a Christian community, and there weren't a lot of churches that would handle this guy. I mean, his testimony was too controversial, and oh my, you might have HIV, and we, you've been sexually promiscuous, and what do we do? Joe has fought very hard over the past 30-plus years to establish a ministry that's based on biblical counseling. This pastor, he launched a podcast where he's taking steps to kind of step outside just the same-sex attracted crowd or the transgender crowd and, and to get into more biblical apologetics. And I commend him for that. He's been a great resource here for the bottom line for many, many years. When he and I had a conversation, though, once about people who were experiencing the transgenderism, and I said, you know, Joe, this is really interesting to me because so many people are, seem to be all of a sudden up in arms. I see the, uh, the, the statistical analysis from Pew and Lifeway and Barna, and they all say essentially the same thing. Over the past five to 10 years, the number of people in Generation Z, which is young people ages 12 to 25, who identify as transgender has gone up to 20% of that population. It's not 0.5, it's not one. And Gen Z and millennials, they're the biggest population of people in the United States. So what do you make of that? And he said, well, you know, first and foremost, a lot of this is a felt desire. It isn't something that's actually happening to them chemically or biologically. They weren't born with conflicting genitalia, that type of stuff. 
But he said, if you look at the numbers closely, what it'll tell you is it's not that these people are transgender, it's that they identify with people who are. And that's huge because when you get right down to it, the number of people in the transgender and gay and lesbian community isn't nearly as large as the media would like you to think it is. But the onslaught of getting people to buy into that type of ideology is massive. And something that uh, it's interesting because there were so many people in the country music industry. I mean, uh, they, they took one look at this post. And of course, everybody has to win the Internet. Right. So if, if that, that's the whole goal of social media, it seems like. Somebody makes a post, and if you, don't disagree, if you don't agree with it, then you have to win. You have to beat them at the argument. And you have to come up with something that's short and pithy, but it's addressing a very deep and complex issue. Uh, Cassidy Pope is a country artist who said, you know, you'd think celebrities with beauty brands would see the positives, including the LGBTQ plus people in their messaging. But instead, here we are, hearing someone compare their quote-unquote tomboy phase to someone waiting to transition. Real nice. Another country singer. Uh, this one by the name of Marin Morris responded to Pope, but this time she did it so in agreement. She said, uh, it's so easy to like not be a scumbag human. Um, sell your clip-ins and zip it, insurrection Barbie. But you know what's interesting? For the most part, um, you know, that Jason Aldean wrote about what his wife said. He said, you know, I'm glad they didn't do that too because, you know, you and I wouldn't have worked out. Um, here's the deal. Brittany Aldean then responded and said, look, advocating for genitalia mutilation of children under the disguise of love and calling it quote unquote gender affirming care is one of the worst evils known to mankind. She continued, I will always support my children and do what I can to protect their innocence. And then she said, some parents want to be accepted so badly by society that they're willing to make life-altering decisions for their children who aren't old enough to fully comprehend the consequences of these actions. I believe that love is protecting your child until they are mature enough as an adult to make their own life decisions. Until then, leave children alone. Um, Brittany Aldean then continued, and she said, if you are silent about your beliefs because you're worried that somebody will be offended, then your beliefs aren't that important to you. But rather, what people think about you is when you stand up for what's right and true, you will receive both hate and love, but everyone you know uh, will know what you're fighting for. Bold words in a cancel culture for sure. And the point that she makes is very, very well taken. I've read too many stories of people, typically women, because there's far more women seeking to transgender, uh, to trans, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Transition to male than the other way around. I've seen a lot of women wearing men's haircuts and calling themselves Alex than anything else in the, in the culture. And yet it's kind of a social thing. If the cool kids are identifying this way, if you didn't get the kind of uh, love and care and respect you were looking for as a woman, why not try it as a man? You know I mean? That, that seems to be, I don't want to overstate this or, or misrepresent. But something Joe Dallas once told me about this whole thing kind of tempers the way I present this. I love the fact that here's the wife of a country star who happens to have a beauty line. She's an attractive woman. She sells makeup and stuff like that and says, look, I went through a tomboy phase and now I love the girly phase. When I talked to, um, uh, oh, come on, Laura Beth Perry, who's now Laura Perry Smaltz. When I talked to Lori, uh, Lori uh, a couple months before her wedding earlier this year, she talked about the nine years that she lived as a guy called Jake. 
and she took a lot of testosterone. She still has a guy's handshake, <laughs> but she loved being a girl. She goes, man, I never thought shopping for a wedding dress would be so much fun. But when she got right down to it, she said, look, I, God made me this way. And I was reacting to the stuff the way I saw it, and I thought there was no value in my feminin- femininity, and so therefore I, I went the other direction, and I was wrong. There are a lot of young ladies who had tomboy seasons when they were younger who love being women now, and they would be irreparably stuck if their parents had said, oh, you're transgender? We'll all get a lot of recognition for this. The surgery is irreversible, or I should say the surgeries. They're not covered by insurance. The hormone replacement therapy is forever. And all you have to do is read the stories of thousands of people who've had the surgeries done, who've had their bodies mutilated, who were sold a bill of goods. And the left is out there saying, oh yeah, if you're a man and you transition to a woman, you can menstruate and you can become a mother. Men can get pregnant too, and it's just not true. But rather than jump up and down and say, see, you guys don't know what you're talking about, my heart breaks for the people who are believing this lie because it just is not true. We'll put this article up at thebottomlineshow.com. I think the good news in this story is really, quite frankly, that somebody who has the public's ear and the public's eye right now is standing up for children and standing up for the biblical worldview of the way God created male and female. Hey, let's take a quick break, and as we continue, there's a guy who plays for the New York Yankees who is having a monster season right now. There's a guy who plays for the Angels having a pretty good year, too, but we're going to focus on the Yankee guy. Yeah, I know, an Angels fan talking about a Yankees guy. Why would I do that? Well, it's Good News Friday, and he has a good news story to share. It's all coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Good News Friday edition of the program, the first Good News Friday edition for the month of September. And I want to wish my sister Linda a happy birthday. I mentioned yesterday was my birthday. Today's Linda's birthday. My parents wanted a boy and a girl two years apart. And Linda and I are exactly 730 years apart because she was born in 1959. 1960 was a leap year, and I was born in 1961. It took us years to figure that out. We used to tease my parents going, you guys were such good planners. How come you couldn't get that right? Like they could. I think we were even almost born around the same time of day. I mean, so it's, um, it's happy birthday, big sis. I would not be where I am today or who I am today without the love and influence and care of my big sister, who's about a foot shorter than me. So happy birthday, sis, and I love you so much. Hey, Linda likes baseball. I like baseball. And my son, Jake, is currently uh, uh rooming with his aunt Linda and Jake Linda's a big Angels fan and Jake's a big Yankees fan you know how that happened right I mean I I, (laughs) I've shared this story before Jake was an Angels fan too the whole family were his sisters and me uh my family until my brother moved to the Bay Area and all of a sudden one season in San Francisco and he was a Giants fan yeah of course that season happened to be the year the Angels won the World Series against the Giants so nonetheless But Jake was a huge Angels fan, and he had a really good friend in elementary school who was also a big Angels fan, and they had a falling out, and Jake said, you know what, I don't like the fact that the Angels this year aren't the same as they were last year, and the Yankees stay more consistent, so I'm going to be a Yankees fan. Now, to his credit, he has been a Yankees fan for the last, what, 15 years or so. So right now, he's loving life because his Yankees are in first place in the American League East, even though they used to have a big lead, and they had a terrible August. So maybe they'll recover Maybe they won't. I'm not sure. 
my angels have been out of it since they were in first place, like right around the middle of May. Something happened around Mother's Day and then Memorial Day. They took Memorial Day way too seriously and they just kind of their season died. But there is a something remarkable regardless of whether or not you are a New York Yankees fan. There's something incredible happening in Major League Baseball this season uh, surrounding a guy by the name of Aaron Judge. Now, Aaron Judge is a big guy and he's a big hitter. 6'7", 275 pounds. Tall, muscular, hits home runs like you wouldn't believe. As a matter of fact, I was looking through my notes from last year. The Angels played the Yankees at Angel Stadium, the Big A, on my birthday. Lisa rented a suite. We went and watched it. And I think the night before, Aaron Judge hit a... He might have hit one on my birthday instead. It was his 30th homer of the year. We thought going into September, the guy had 30 home runs last year. That was really impressive. The other night, Aaron Judge hit his 51st home run. Been a while since the Yankees had a guy hitting 50 home runs. And at Yankee Stadium, been there once, it's a great place, um, the right field foul line is kind of short. If you hit it to straightaway center, it's a pretty good shot. But if you're a left-handed hitter or a right-handed guy with opposite field power, you can get some short porch home runs, as we call them. Aaron Judge plays right field. But I don't know that he hits a lot of his home runs to right field, but he hit his 51st the other night. Now, why is that significant? You may remember back in 1961, which was one of my favorite years, um, a guy by the name of Roger Maris took advantage of the fact that Major League Baseball, which had been a 154-game season, added an expansion team or two, I believe. The Angels were one of those teams. And they wound up playing an additional eight games that year. So the 162-game schedule that we have become accustomed to in Major League Baseball has been the norm since the 1961 season. Babe Ruth had the single-season home run record at 60 for a number of years back in the mid-1920s. Then Roger Maris came out of nowhere. I mean, the team already had Mickey Mantle. There were some other great hitters. Maris had had some okay success with the Cardinals, but then he comes over to the Yankees. Mickey Mantle hit 56 that year. Roger Maris at 61. He broke Ruth's record. Now, there was an asterisk next to it for a number of years because he hit 61 on the 162nd game of the year, whereas Babe Ruth got 60 and 154. Then Mark McGuire came and hit like 70, and that just kind of knocked everybody's socks off. And I think Sammy Sosa actually hit 65 or 66 that same year. Barry Bonds has the single season record. What's it, 73? Something like that. But Aaron Judge is at 51, and so no one is looking at him and saying, okay, he's going to beat the Bonds record, or he's going to beat the McGuire record, but he has an excellent chance to pass pass up the Bambino at 60 and Roger Maris at 61. And to have the single-season Yankee home run record would be really, really incredible. Now, why am I talking about baseball on a Good News Friday story? Well, here's the reason why. Uh And it has nothing to do with the fact that the Yankees were just in Anaheim and the Angels took two out of three. The Angels are in next to last place. If the Oakland A's weren't so horrible, the Angels should be the worst team in baseball. How they got two out of three from the Yankees, I'm not sure. But one of those hits and one of those wins, or maybe it was on the Wednesday night game, Aaron Judge hitting his home run. So you know Aaron Judge is a superstar athlete. You know he's got a big bat. But did you know that Aaron Judge is adopted? And that his pro-life story has the hand of God all over it. 
We're going to talk about the faith of Aaron Judge and his two adopted parents coming up next as the bottom line continues. Let Wilson Financial Services help you identify proprietary financial strategies for your wealth that work for your life. Let's revisit our one-year CD. Had a client who had $500,000 of retained earnings in his corporation for the last three years. I said, if you'd have put that into this account three years ago, you'd have seventy-five dollars to $100,000 of interest versus what you have now, which is a nice round number. Had a client sell his house, had $450,000 in the bank. I told him, is he really not likely to buy a house in the next 12 months? You want to leave this in the bank earning nothing? Or would you like to earn some interest on it over the next 12 months? So he said, how much? I said, well, how about between twenty and 30000 He says, zero versus twenty or 30000 Yeah, he says, I like the twenty or 30000 Sounds better. Aren't you tired of earning nothing with all the money you have in the bank? Call 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Good News Friday, wrapping things up here with a baseball story. That's also a pro-life story. That's also an adoption story. That's also a faith story. If you are a baseball fan, I mentioned the name Aaron Judge, and you know exactly who I'm talking about. If you're not, see if you can catch a New York Yankees game on television. Californians especially, uh, this is one of our local kids. On April 26, 1992, Aaron Judge was born. On April 27, 1992, Patty and Wayne Judge adopted him. Uh, The judges call that day a miracle. And Aaron Judge says, absolutely, it's a miracle. In fact, he gave an interview to the Christian Post where he said, you know what? I know on that day that they picked me and that God was the one who matched us together. Aaron Judge, big old strapping, 6'7", 275 pounds, was adopted by two retired physical education teachers from California. He gives the bulk of his credit. I mean, the Yankees scouting team, when they saw this guy coming out of high school, they said, we know this guy has a quote-unquote super uh, talent collection here. I mean, he's the whole package, the five-tool player. But basically, he says, if it weren't for my parents uh, showing me how to be hardworking and respectful from day one, this is it. He said, look, he gave an interview to the New York Post, and he said, my parents are amazing. They've taught me so many lessons. I honestly can't thank them enough for what they've done for me. He says, when it comes to the bond that he has with his mom and dad, I am truly blessed. Patty Judge says that it's actually her husband and she who are the ones who are truly blessed because they've been the adoptive parents of two sons. And she said, we've watched them grow up into incredible individuals. And this is really remarkable. Now, you know, it's interesting because when... uh, in giving a, the interview with the New York Post, they asked Aaron Judge about being adopted. What is it about your adoption that uh, is, is special to you? Well, for openers, and again, this is the, the new movie Life Mark is coming out next Friday with Kendrick Brothers. We're going to have more tickets to give away, by the way, next Friday, so be listening for that. That is an open adoption story about a young teenage couple, 18, 19 years of age, who contemplated abortion but wound up releasing their son for adoption and then reconnecting with him after he turned 18. In the, and sometimes an open adoption works great. I know my friend and mentor, Dr. Jim Burns, and his wife, Kathy, uh, have three daughters. Their oldest daughter, Christy, was adopted, and they have an open adoption situation in her world as well. She knows her birth mom. Uh, she's the birth mom to uh, two kids right now, I believe, happily married. But she wanted to get to know her birth mom. Birth mom said, absolutely. 
In the case of Aaron Judge, his is a closed adoption. He gave an interview to Newsday and they asked him, why is your adoption closed? He said, well, you know, when I was about 10 or 11, I began to look at my brother. I began to look at my mom and dad. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, I don't look like you. (laughs) There's something wrong. And so I asked my mom and dad one day, am I adopted? And they said, yeah, as a matter of fact, you are. And then he said, we just sat down and we spent hours talking about my whole story. And I asked them questions and they answered me. And quite frankly, I was okay with that. I mean, one of the questions, though, that they had for him once it was done was they said, okay, well, they told me that I was adopted. I said, okay, that's fine with me because whether or not I have a biological parent, you know, somewhere out there or not, you are the only mom I've ever known. You're the only dad I've ever known. So you are my parents. And then they asked him, okay, well, would you like to meet your birth parents at some point? And he said, no, I don't have to. I mean, you're my parents. I am blessed with the parents that I have. Uh, Then he went on and said this. I love this quote in the New York Post article. He said, I know I would not be a New York Yankee if it wasn't for my mom. The guidance she gave me as a kid growing up, knowing the difference between right and wrong, how to treat people, how to go the extra mile, put in the extra work, all that kind of stuff. She is the one who molded me into the person that I am today. Now, obviously, if you're adopted and that's not your story, you know, you didn't wind up playing right field for the New York Yankees. (laughs) breaking Roger Maris's and Babe Ruth's records potentially for home runs of the same season. I get it. But I love this story because the judges talk very matter-of-factly about their faith. They talk about their family. In their case, the closed adoption was the best way to go. And for other families, the open adoption is. But in a world where so many women get duped into an abortion because they think their only options are you either kill the child in the womb, make the problem go away. That way you don't have to worry about paying for it and stuff like that. Or you've got, you know, the the other, well, you're going to have that kid and you're going to struggle and you're going to suffer and it's going to be hard for all of you and you're going to live in poverty and whatever. Not knowing there's a third option. I was shocked when George Barnett told me on this program a couple months ago. And then uh, uh, John Ott from uh, uh, Opt Institute, uh, John Knox rather, came on board and said, yeah, You'd be amazed at the number of women who do not know that adoption is an option. Well, brothers and sisters, please know, and if, if God is speaking to your heart about adopting, I really encourage you to check it out. And if you are in a, uh, you've got someone in your family, I mean, obviously a lot of bottom line listeners are not in the childbearing season anymore. I'm not. Um, but if you've got kids or grandkids that are, and maybe it's more than they can handle that in pending pregnancy, I highly recommend you look into adoption. There's great medical care for you. There's financial compensation for you. It's a great deal. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of good, qualified Christian parents that want to adopt the child and raise that child as their own. You may have an open adoption, like in the story of Life Bark, that great movie coming out next Friday. You might have a closed adoption, like Aaron Judge. But at the end of the day, isn't this whole thing about what's best for the child? The left doesn't understand that. They want to sacrifice these kids on the altar of Molech. They want to transgender these kids and ruin their bodies and their lives forever just because it makes them feel better. But at the end of the day, God creates each of us individually in our mother's wombs. Each of us has a calling and each of us will one day stand before him and give an answer for the way we lived our lives. Don't we as parents have an obligation to make sure that our kids get the best opportunity that they have to be who God created them to be? That's the good news, and that's the bottom line.